Our sermon text is from Hebrews 2, verse 9. Listen carefully to God's word. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the death of Jesus, that he tasted death for us. Help us to meditate on your word and sanctify us by it, because it is truth and it does sanctify us. Do this for the sake of Jesus and by the power of his spirit. Amen. Please be seated. For whom did Christ die? For whom did Jesus taste death? Taste death. That's how verse 9 puts it. He tasted death. And the text that I just read to you, Hebrews 2.9, says that Jesus became human. He took on flesh and blood. He became a little lower than the angels. So that by God's grace, he might taste death for whom? For everyone. On the surface, at least, this phrase, for everyone, might appear to create something of a a challenge or a problem for us. Our theological tradition, our Reformed theological heritage, our Theological confessions teach us that Christ died not for every single person in the whole world, at least not in the same way, but for God's chosen people, for the church, for his bride, for the elect. These are all phrases that the Bible uses. He came as a substitute, just as the Old Testament sacrifices were a substitute for a particular group of of people that God knew he was going to save from before the foundation of the world. Now, I, I refer to our, our confessions, but those are, those are not infallible. Those are not inspired. Those are not God's words. But they are based on the Scriptures, on God's Word, which itself teaches that Christ died for a definite number of people. And that's why the doctrine historically has been called definite Atonement, particular atonement. He came to save those, as the book of John puts it repeatedly, those given to him by the Father. Remember how Jesus uses that language as we're going through the book of John. Jesus keeps talking about, and he's going to talk more about, those that the Father has given to me, which in John 17, he makes it clear that it's not everyone. Not everyone has been given to Jesus. He doesn't pray for everyone. He specifically, explicitly says that in John 17. I'm not praying for everyone. I'm praying for those whom the Father has given me, those who will be my disciples both now and in the future. So he makes that distinction. Let me read a handful of passages that establish this important yet difficult doctrine. 
Matthew 20, verse 28. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for whom? For many. Not all, but many. The term many there suggests that Jesus, he gave his life as a ransom, not for every single person ever to be born, but for many of them, a subset of all of humanity. Matthew 26, 28. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Not for every single person, but for many. John 10, 11 and 10, 15. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for whom? For the sheep. Not for the goats, but for the sheep. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. So Jesus, again, limits the scope of his death to his sheep. There's something peculiar about his sheep and and how his death, how his laying down his life relates to those that will be, are, or will be his sheep. And that's why he prays for those sheep in John 17. And we know that that his sheep does not include every human in the world. Acts 20, 28, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock to shepherd the church. He's writing, this is uh, or Paul talking to the, the shepherds, the pastors. To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So the purchasing power of the cross applies to the church, to the body of Christ, those that are saved. So Jesus limits, again, the saving benefits of his death to his bride. And we know that his bride does not include every human ever to be born. Ephesians 5, 25 to 27, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it, the church, should be holy and without blemish. So he starts with the, the death of Christ, giving himself for, and all of the other benefits that flow from that death apply only to the bride. Hebrews 2.17, Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren... That's the church, that's believers. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, the word propitiation, remember that's kind of a big word, but it refers to the satisfaction of God's wrath. So God's anger, his wrath against sin, sinfulness, and sinners, all of the above, had to be propitiated. It had to be satisfied. That's why Christ had to go to the cross so that the wrath of God could be poured out on him. And here, the writer of Hebrews says that Christ, when he went to the cross, made propitiation for the sins of every single person ever to be born? No, for the the propitiation for the sins of the people. It's a definite group of people. And the people here refers to the people of God. God's people, which doesn't include every human ever to be born. 
This, this verse very clearly says that Christ made propitiation specifically for the sins of God's peculiar people, as 1 Peter 2 puts it, or chosen people, as 1 Peter 2 puts it. One more, Hebrews 9, and I'll read two verses from Hebrews 9, verse 15 and verse 28. For this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called, we know from the Bible, the rest of the Bible, not everyone is called, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So, Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. We could read many, many more that single out a special, peculiar, particular, definite people for whom God sent Jesus to die. And we must acknowledge that he, whatever we say about how Christ's death applies to or is offered to the whole, every single person in the whole world, we must acknowledge that he came to die in a special way for those who will be saved, in a way that he doesn't die for those who will not be saved. So the scripture is not unclear on this point. Jesus laid down his life for every person, every single person who is a part of the people of God. Every single person whom the Father has given to the Son. After all, let's think about it. Let's just reflect theologically for a minute. If Christ died for every single person without exception, and and I'll just add this, if he died for every single person without exception in the same way, if Jesus propitiated God's wrath on behalf of every human ever born, then one obvious question that arises is, then why isn't everybody saved? Why won't everyone be in heaven? Why will there be some in hell forever paying for their sins eternally and never paying the debt back? That's why it's eternal. If Christ died for them, if Christ died for their sins, you see the theological problem that it would create if what the scriptures said were not true. And so this brings us back to our text, Hebrews 2.9, which says that Jesus died for everyone. What does it mean that Christ died for everyone? Well, as those who take the Bible seriously, who believe every single word that it says, as those maybe even who tend to pride ourselves in just accepting the plain meaning of the text and not trying to monkey with it, but just let's just believe what the verse says, no matter how challenging it is. As those who desire not to have any problem passages, because that means we're resisting Scripture and we're trying to fit Scripture into our system, and we don't want to put God or His Word into a box, as, as those who take the Bible seriously in those sort of ways, it might be tempting for us just to say, well, the text says everyone, so it must mean everyone without exception. Christ died for every human ever born. And if that's what it means, if that's what it meant, 
then we would just need to accept it and we'd believe it, let the chips fall where they may, even if we can't explain it, right? And there are things that we have to do that with. We can't, we can't fit everything in Scripture together. So maybe is this one of those places where we just believe it and if, if we can't get our minds wrapped around it, so be it. Well, maybe, but let me point something out. To say that everyone means every human in the world without exception is actually an interpretation that goes beyond what the word everyone necessarily means. In fact, it goes beyond what the word usually means. We'll say often means. I haven't done a count. For example... This is both in the scriptures but in our everyday life. So let me just give you an example. If, if, you're, if you're gathering together to take a family picture and someone asks, is everyone here? And another person replies, yeah, everyone's here. Go ahead and take the picture. You intuitively know that everyone in those two statements that were made back to back doesn't mean every human in the world. It means every human in that family. Or if the owner of a company gathers all his, his employees together and tells them that everyone is going to receive shares in the company. You know instinctively, intuitively, that everyone doesn't refer to every human being without exception. It refers to every human being in that company, in that context, in that group. And, and the reality is that much of the time, maybe most of the time, when we use words like all or every or everyone, we don't mean them in their absolute sense. You can probably think of other ways we use these words, like everyone's doing it, right? We, we, it's hyperbole. But we don't think about it when we do it because it's just normal. In fact, sometimes if we want to use these words in their absolute sense, sometimes we, we have to use extra words to make it clear that that's what we're doing. For example, if I want to refer to every person in the whole world, I can't just say every person, right? I didn't just then. To be clear, I have to say something like every person in the whole world, and that makes it very clear if it wasn't clear before. So everybody knows that this is how language works. Words like all and every and everyone are not always used in their, most, in their absolute sense. So what does this mean for Hebrews 2, 9? It means at least that we shouldn't come to this text assuming that everyone means every human being in the world without exception. That would be an interpretation that might be true, but not necessarily true. But we have to do the hard work of figuring out what the author means. And like any verse in the Bible, when you're reading Scripture, the best place to go to figure out what it means is not the dictionaries, the lexicons, you know, what the, what, what the lexicons say about the Greek or the Hebrew out of context. The best place to go is the immediate context. And that's where we're headed. That's where we're going to end up. We're going we're gonna to look at the remainder of Hebrews 2 in a moment and see what's going on here. But to let you know where we're going with this, I want you to turn in your Bible to Romans 8. Verse 32, Romans chapter 8, verse 32. If you don't have a Bible, you can just listen carefully. But it might be helpful to turn there in your phone or in your old-fashioned Bible. Romans 8, 
32. And I'll read from the New King James Version. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, or for all of us, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? The word all appears in this verse, you'll notice, two times. And this is the same word that gets translated everyone in Hebrews 2.9. In Hebrews 2.9, it's singular, so everyone. And here in Romans 8.32, it's plural. And notice at the end of Romans 8.32, Paul says that God freely gives us, what? All things. Now, we, we know it doesn't mean all things without exception, right? There, there's a lot of things that God withholds from us that he does not give us and that he won't give us because we don't need him. And in fact, it's for our good. What Paul means here is that there's no blessing in Christ that God will withhold from his people. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness and even more than we can imagine, really, and count. So that's just an a interesting way that all is used here. But what I really want you to look at is the middle of the verse. It says that God delivered him up. He sent his son to the cross for who? For us all. For all. And then he adds, of us. Now, before we go back and look more closely at Hebrews 2.9, I want to suggest two things to you. First, Paul could have left out the us. In Romans 8.32, he could have just simply said, God delivered him up for, for all. And he would have meant the same thing. All of us is clearer, so, I, so we can be glad that Paul used of us here. But sometimes scripture just says all or every when it means all of us, all believers, all the righteous, everyone whom the, whom the Father has given to the Son. Second, when we read Hebrews 2, 9 here in a second, even though the us is absent, when it says that Jesus tasted death for everyone, I'm going to argue that it means he tasted death for everyone of us, even though the of us isn't in there. He didn't make it explicit, the writer of Hebrews. Everyone of God's people. So Romans 8.32 and Hebrews 2.9 are saying the same thing. Jesus died for each and every one of his children, of his people, of those sons that will be brought to glory, of those whom the Father has given the Son. Again, just to pile on the biblical language there. So now turn back to Hebrews 2, and I'll make the case for this interpretation from, from the immediate context, which is always where you need to end up when you're interpreting a passage or a phrase or a word like this. Now, in a lot of our English Bibles, there's a paragraph, paragraph break and even a section break between verses 9 and 10. But that's a, a little bit unfortunate if, if it presents us from seeing the connection between verse 9 and verse 10. And you can see that connection right away with the, with the word for at the beginning of verse 10. 
which means that it provides the support for verse 9. Verse 10 says, For it was fitting for him for whom all things and by whom all things are made, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, that's the key phrase, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. You might have noticed there that all is being used in an absolute way here. All things and by whom are all things. That refers to, to absolutely all things. But what I want to focus here on is in bringing many sons to glory. In other words, God's design in sending Jesus to the cross was to bring many children, many sons and daughters to glory. So if we read verse 9 and verse 10 together, we see that everyone in verse 9 refers to every one of those sons who will be brought to glory in verse 10. The writer of Hebrews did not want us to disconnect verse 9 from verse 10. That's why he put that 4 in there. Jesus died for all the sons of future glory. Every single one. And this is precisely what Caiaphas says in John's gospel. In John eleven fifty two, the high priest Caiaphas prophesied on God's authority. He's not even a believer. But he prophesied on God's authority that Jesus would die in order, quote, to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. In other words, who are scattered throughout the whole world. And these children of God that Christ died to gather are the children, the sons, that God leads to glory through the death of Christ here in Hebrews 2.10. Let's see if verses 11 and 12 fill this out for us. For both he who sanctifies, that is Christ, and those who are being sanctified, that is the sons being led to glory, are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. So now we see that the sons who are being led to glory through the death of Jesus are Christ's brethren, his brothers and sisters. Christ tasted death for every one of these brethren. He died for every one of his brothers and sisters, every one of those in the family of God. Verse 13 says that these brethren are the children of God. It says, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Again, we see that language of those whom God has given me. So the sons being led to glory through the death of Jesus are children whom God has given to Christ. And every one of these children was given to Christ, we know, from before the foundation of the world. Every one of these children will be brought to glory. How do we know this? Because Christ tasted death for every one of these children. Are you beginning to see why we can't connect, or why we can't disconnect Verses 10 and following from verse 9. Because verses 10 and following explain what's going on in verse 9. Christ tasted death for all of his people. And this is precisely what Jesus says in his high priestly prayer in John 17. John 17, 6 says, 
Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. These people that Jesus is talking about, you and me, are those that Jesus is about to die for here in John's Gospel. Notice in Hebrews 2 how verses 14 and 15 connect the incarnation and death of Jesus to his chosen children, his elect brothers and sisters. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, in other words, inasmuch as these elect children are humans, he himself likewise shared in the same. He shared in our humanity by taking on our flesh and blood. Why? That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Not everyone will be released from that. Not everyone will be released from that fear of death and that bondage. Only those for whom Christ died. Only, the, only those for whom Christ destroyed the devil. And the reason the Son of God became human and died was to save the human children, the flesh and blood children that the Father had given to Him. So in these two verses, the death of Christ is not for every human made up of flesh and blood, which is every human ever to be born, but specifically for the human children of Christ who will be brought to glory. Verse 16, for indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to whom? To the seed of Abraham. Jesus didn't die for the angels. He only died for those who are the seed of Abraham, which is not every human without exception. Verse 17, therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The death of Christ didn't propitiate the sins of every person ever born or ever to be born. It only propitiated the sins of the, notice the definite article, the people. God's people, us, you and me, those who believe in Jesus. Those who are united to Christ by faith in him, in his death. God's aim in the death of Christ was to accomplish something definite. It had a specific purpose. It, it had a definite purpose for his brethren, for his children, for his people. He tasted death for you to make sure that you got brought to glory. Make sure that you are brought to glory. He died for everyone whom the Father gave him. So why does this matter? Is this just a a theological point that makes us different or that's fun to argue or maybe not so fun to argue about? No, it it has great application. It means a lot of things. For one, it means that your salvation is not of you, 
It's of God. Think about it. If, if Christ died for everyone in the same way, then what's the difference between those who are saved and those who are not? It really comes down to, those, to the difference between those who decide to trust and those who do not, which there's some truth in that, right? But that's not the ultimate different difference because if that were the ultimate difference, then that means you could glory in your faith and you would be thanking yourself in glory for deciding to do something that somebody else didn't decide to do. It wouldn't be by grace alone that you were saved. It would be by your own good judgment because that would be what makes the difference between you and someone who does not believe. You see, the death of Christ purchased your faith. And if he died for everyone in the same way, that means... The cross did not purchase faith because then everyone would have faith. And so if the cross doesn't purchase your faith, you have to come up with your faith on your own apart from the cross of Christ. And that undermines the gospel. It makes you co-savior with Christ. So that's one reason it's important. Here's another reason. Until you realize, and, I, and to me this is probably the most important reason having to do with your faith and your relationship with Christ. Until you realize that Christ died for you in a particular way, until you realize that he died for you in a way that he didn't die for those who will be in hell, until you realize that the, God, that, that the Father sent Jesus to die for you in a way he didn't send uh, the, the Son to die for everyone else, you'll never understand the special covenant love that God has for you in Christ. It's a special love. It's like the special love of a husband for his wife. God's love for you is not the same as his love for those who will never accept Jesus. God's love for you in sending Jesus included loving you and purchasing your belief in him. You must know this. Otherwise, you, you neglect the great salvation that is yours. And, and in Hebrews 2, we're told not to neglect so great a salvation. There's a greatness about the love of Calvary that you will never appreciate if you think that those in hell were loved and died for in the same way you were. Now, it might seem humble or pious to believe that Christ loves those in hell the same way he loves his own bride. But imagine a wife who insisted that her husband loved her sacrificially no different than he loved other women sacrificially. Think about that. Think about how how off base that would be. How wrong headed. It would be a it would be a profound misunderstanding. Hopefully, if that husband is faithful, right? It would be a profound misunderstanding of her husband's love for her, his peculiar love for her, his particular love. For her, a special 
even covenant love, as marriage is a covenant, for her. And so just as there is a special covenant love between a man and his bride, there is a special covenant love between Christ Jesus and his bride. Now this is not to say that Jesus doesn't, that, that God and Jesus don't love everyone in some way, that, that they don't love the world, every single person ever to be born in some way, right? We know that he does love everyone. In fact, he, he allows them to be born and allows them to live in his, on his earth. And, and he even sends rain and good gifts like that to those who will never believe in him, those who will never love him. We're also not, I'm also not saying that when we present the gospel, we have to somehow think that we you know, can only present it to those who that, you know, are going to be saved. Otherwise, we're presenting something to them that is not theirs. That's not true. God offers the gospel. God offers forgiveness to everyone. And everyone who believes will be saved. And so you don't have to know who will be saved before you can preach the gospel, before you can talk to someone about the gospel and call them to repentance and faith. And if they believe, if they trust in Christ, then it's made manifest at that point that they are one of the sheep, that they are one of the ones given to Jesus by the Father. So God offers His his grace to everyone. But he only has covenant love for some, for those that will be saved. And this love, this eternal love, this love that existed from before the foundation of the world, before you existed, it moved him to die for you. It moved him to die for his bride. The death of Jesus is for those who are being saved in a way it's not for those who are perishing. Everyone for whom Christ died will be brought to glory. But not everyone, without exception, will be brought to glory. This good news for those who belong to Jesus has nothing to do with anything that you have done. You didn't cause this. You didn't contribute to this in any way. You didn't do anything to make God love you with this covenant love. It has nothing to do with anything you've done. It has everything to do with God's love for you before you were born, before you had done any evil or any good, as Paul puts it in Romans 9. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us in Christ, for your love that sent him to the cross, your love that saved us, your love that chose us, for your new covenant love. Thank you for making us your bride and for making a home, an eternal home for us through the death of Jesus. 
we confess that it is all your doing and that it's none of our doing and we thank you for it. And we give you thanks in the name of Jesus. Amen.